Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. This week marks the second anniversary of the police killing of George Floyd. 26-year-old Mr. Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin dealt on Floyd's neck and back for nine minutes and 20 seconds. As Mr. Floyd was dying, he cried out, I can't breathe, while calling out for his mother. His death sparked protests all across the country and indeed across the world. Today, as we remember George Floyd, we hear from Minneapolis resident Marsha Howard. We also speak to Tristan Taylor, an activist with Detroit Will Breathe, and Jaleesa Trapp, a collective member of the Tacoma Action Collective. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Honested. More details have emerged from Uvalde, Texas, where authorities say a lone 18-year-old went on a shooting rampage at the Robb Elementary School, killing 19 children and two teachers Tuesday. Stephen McCraw, director of Texas Department of Public Safety, says Salvador Ramos bought hundreds of rounds of ammunition in the months leading up to the attack. On March 17th, Ramos purchased a semi-automatic rifle at a local sporting goods store. On March 18th, he purchased 375 rounds of ammunition for that rifle. On March 20th, he purchased another semi-automatic rifle at that same local store. And he detailed his plans on social media minutes before the attack. McCraw joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who didn't mention gun control, but instead pointed to mental health, although Ramos had no history of mental health challenges. His comments drew ire from Democrat Beto O'Rourke of Texas, who interrupted the press conference and was subsequently escorted out of the press conference. He spoke to local media. Because the governor of the state of Texas, the most powerful man in the state, chose to do nothing. He went to Santa Fe High School after kids were killed in their classrooms, told the parents he would do something. He did nothing. He came to my hometown of El Paso after 23 people were slaughtered. He said he was going to do something. He did nothing. In fact, the only thing he did was make it easier to buy a gun. The only thing he did was make it easier to carry a gun in public. And he bragged about the fact that there would be no background check, no training, no vetting whatsoever. President Joe Biden says he and Jill Biden will travel to Uvalde to comfort the bereaved families. Speaking at the White House Wednesday, Biden called for gun control measures. Well, they clearly will not prevent every tragedy. We know certain ones will have significant impact and have no negative impact on the Second Amendment. Second Amendment is not absolute. When it was passed, you couldn't own a you couldn't own a cannon. You couldn't own certain kinds of weapons. But he offered little hope of passage in the Senate where Republicans have blocked gun control efforts. Eileen Alfandari, 
Reports from Pacifica station KPFA, Democrats aren't giving up. In the face of the horror of yet another school massacre, Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer begged his Republican colleagues to reach across the aisle for even a modest compromise bill, expanding background check requirements before buying firearms. My Republican colleagues, imagine if it happened to you. Imagine if this was your kid or your grandkid. Please, 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 damn it, put yourself in the shoes of these parents for once. Last year, the House passed two bills to expand background checks on firearms purchases. One would have closed a loophole for private and online sales. The other would have extended the background check review period. Neither could surmount a Republican filibuster nor get the support of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Now Manchin is saying there's potential for a bipartisan red flag law that would set up a procedure to allow a judge to block people from owning guns if they pose a risk to themselves or others. Several states, including California, have such laws. So does Florida, which enacted its red flag law after the Parkland High School massacre in 2018. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Joe Biden signed up executive order aimed at police reform on the second year anniversary of the police killing of George Floyd. Christopher Martinez reports. This executive order is going to deliver the most significant police reform in decades. President Joe Biden's executive order on policing is in part modeled after the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, in some areas going even farther. It will track deadly use of force incidents by federal law enforcement officers and create a database of officer misconduct. It puts limits on police acquisition of military equipment that the White House says belongs on a battlefield, not on our streets. It will also change some police practices that were used in incidents like the police killing of George Floyd and of Breonna Taylor, who was shot and killed when police entered the wrong apartment without knocking. Bans chokeholds, restricts no-knock warrants, tightens use of force policies to emphasize de-escalation and duty to intervene to stop another officer from using executive force. Vice President Kamala Harris joined Biden for the signing ceremony, saying too often biased policing and excessive force are not met with accountability. And we are here today in memory of George Floyd and all those we have lost to take action. She blasted Senate Republicans for opposing the George Floyd legislation, killing the measure and making executive action the only option. The order has support from police groups. It's also supported by civil rights groups, even though, as Biden acknowledges, the order only applies directly to the nation's 100,000 federal police officers. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On May 25th, 2020, 46-year-old George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by white police officer Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin proceeded to kneel on Mr. Floyd's neck for 9 minutes and 29 seconds, preventing him from breathing. As he was pinned under Chauvin's knee, Mr. Floyd repeatedly cried out for help and said he couldn't breathe. Indeed, he called for his mother. During the final two minutes of him being pinned down, George Floyd was motionless and had no pulse. George Floyd's unjust killing at the hands of Minneapolis police 
ignited a series of protests in his hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and across the nation and indeed across the globe in response to police brutality against Black lives. There have been 230 Black and Brown people killed by police since George Floyd's murder. And former police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted and charged with uh, 22 and a half years in prison for the murder of Mr. Floyd. Chauvin pleaded guilty to federal charges in December of 2021, admitting to civil rights violations in the Floyd case, as well as violating an unnamed 14-year-old rights um, as in late 2017, when he held Juvenile 1 by the throat and struck Juvenile 2 multiple times in the head with a flashlight, this according to court documents from that case. Now, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey enacted, he said, a ban on chokeholds and limits on traffic stops that predominantly target Black residents, but this hasn't happened. Also, Minneapolis voters last fall rejected a ballot initiative that would have replaced the police department with a new Department of Public Safety. And a recent state investigation found the Minneapolis police indeed have continued to engage in, quote, discriminatory race-based policing, end of quote, targeting and using force on Black people at a higher rate than white people. Now, on May 26, um, community residents uh, gathered at the spot where George Floyd lost his life. Let us go to a clip now from KSTP on that gathering. The people who live in Minneapolis were at the epicenter of what's been considered a global movement. Our Brittany Ehrman has been spending some time talking with people near George Floyd Square, hearing what they had to say two years later. Well, people tell me, yes, it's been two years, but the pain and sadness is still fresh. And we've seen people come in and out of George Floyd Square all day today, and we've seen people leave fresh flowers, making new signs, and some people just watched in silence. And people tell me it's difficult to move forward when not much has changed. So people are really, truly ready to look in their heart and see one another as equals. Nothing's ever going to change. On May 25th, 2020, the world watched George Floyd take his last breath. Floyd's death sparked outrage from coast to coast with protesters demanding immediate change. Two years later, some say the pace of progress is slow. We like to say we're post-racial or we've learned or things have changed and I'd like to think they have, but maybe every little tiny baby step, step, we go back many more steps and it's heartbreaking. We have been standing and waiting on justice and we're still working to get to the other side of justice. Janelle Austin is the executive director of the George Floyd Global Memorial. She says seeing a change in policing in a world that reflects equality will take investments and more time. It's gonna take more than two years. If we're talking 400 years to get us to this point that we're at. She says the goal is to create a better future for kids like Innocence Johnson. Like throughout these barricades and stuff, I actually helped paint some of those. Um, also helped spray paint things. The 12-year-old saw George Floyd Square transform into a place of reflection and healing. It's more like educational 
because you know as like you can see all this stuff and understand what's going on. Community leaders say the movement cannot lose momentum. We need to not forget lest we just go back to business as usual and see the same things happen over and over and over again. And the crowd is starting to grow at George Floyd Square. Tonight at 7 in just about an hour, family members will, un will unveil a sign in honor of the life of George Floyd. And after that, a vigil will follow at 8 all righty uh there you have that i would now like to uh welcome our guests uh who will be with us for this hour i'd like to first uh, welcome marcia howard a high school english teacher caregiver and activist based in minneapolis marcia thank you for joining us thank you for having me Okay, I'd also like to welcome uh, Jaleesa Trapp, a former teacher. She is a current PhD student at MIT and an active member in Black Lives Matter. Jaleesa is a collective member of the Tacoma Action Collective, a collective rooted in the principles of building autonomous communities rooted in equity while working towards eliminating structural violence and systemic oppression. Jaleesa, welcome. Thank you for having me. And also uh, Tristan Taylor, co-founder of Detroit Will Breathe. Tristan is an aspiring revolutionary. Tristan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All righty. Um, we're actually going to start with you, uh, Marsha um, Howard, just to get a sense of the mood on the ground as this week, the entire week of uh, the 25th was the official day marking of the second anniversary of George Floyd's killing. By the way, uh, today in, uh, in, on the continent of Africa and across the diaspora, uh, people are also marking African Liberation Day. But uh, Marsha Howard, tell us now about what you're sensing about the mood on the ground in the clip. We heard um, residents uh, expressing disappointment and basically saying that not much of anything, if anything, has changed. Your thoughts, Marcia? Um, hello, I have been at George Floyd Square, uh, the intersection of 30 in Chicago as an occupier for two years and a day uh, since the lynching of George Floyd. And the mood uh, in that square is it's probably reflected in the weather. It's chilly and it's been raining in the last couple of days. Uh, and that is how people have been feeling. Uh, we're chilled to the bone and we're sorrowful in the sense that we know that we lost this brother and countless others since. Uh, and when we stand in solidarity, uh, looking for reform, looking for justice, looking for equity, something that feels like we're making some progress in dismantling racial systems of oppression, we get stymied by the fact that so many people that are citizens of this country are emotionally and psychologically invested in those very same systems. That is the work that we are doing each and every day at George Floyd Square. We're bringing community in and we're sitting around a fire, occupying an intersection saying we have to change because ain't no good gonna come to this country until we do right by us, black folks. Black liberation is for the liberation of everybody. We mean that. Right. And uh, Marsha, I, I don't need to ask you what was your immediate reaction in learning about the killing 
of George Floyd. But, you know, how personally, how did you, how did that personally impact you? And did you yourself feel under threat? I mean, so many Black people I know, um, including myself, we, we do feel under threat on a daily basis. So I, I wanted you to talk about that. Um, so you have the police killings uh, on the one hand of George Floyd, but then there have been uh, killings by the police in Minneapolis since then. Um, Marsha. I, I think you need to understand the history of this city. Minneapolis or Minnesota in general is known as the land of lakes and loons and Minnesota nice. I live in Bryant neighborhood, which is historically black neighborhood in South Minneapolis. And we have lived under the yoke of the third precinct of Minneapolis Police Department for 30 some odd years. Uh, Y'all, we had the gang strike force. They weren't just basically a glorified gang. Uh, they terrorize people um they they had hold on one second i'm a teacher right now and i'm hearing like announcements but that's quite in, all right yeah carry in, on uh -huh. in south minneapolis um we've had people police stopping brothers and and hispanic dudes and yanking them out their car they've been doing that for years matter of fact we just had the minnesota department of human rights do a 10-year report that's nothing but an indictment of the police as a terrorist organization. That is on paper now, demonstrable, proven. And then you wonder, where is the change going to come when you have our fellow citizens re-electing the person that's in charge of the police? And I don't mean a chief of police, I'm talking about our mayor. Because one thing we know about people, uh, middle-class white folks, they go dance with who, who, who brought them. They don't change horses midstream. It's better the devil that they know. And so until we can get people who are sitting in their homes, sitting in their cars right now, sitting in their office right now to, to divest themselves from white supremacy, a change won't come. And black and brown indigenous people will continue to suffer. Right. And, you know, you have... Um you know, in, in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, and we'll be talking to a guest uh, from Michigan, um, a police killing there of an officer uh, shooting a man um, after uh, pulling him over for a license plate uh, violation. Uh, so we'll be this Patrick uh, Leoya. But I'd like now to go on to uh, Jalisa. And with a similar question, uh, Jalisa, just your thoughts now on this second anniversary, but tell us to your reaction personally, on a personal level, to the killing of, of George Floyd. And are you remaining hopeful or are you also feeling that not that much has changed, uh, Jalisa? My initial reaction you know, I was I was really sad. Um, I was also hopeful at the time because at the time I was still teaching and I saw a lot of my students organizing. Um, but a few days later, one of my friends from high school reached out and said that her brother had been killed by the police in Tacoma um, in March and we had never heard about it. Um, and so, you know, we started organizing around that around the murder of Manuel Ellis in Tacoma, Washington. 
only to find out later that there was video, there was audio that the police had of him saying the same thing, I can't breathe. And they covered it up for nearly three months. And it wasn't until June 3rd that, you know, it was actually ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. Um, and so while I wanna be hopeful, this, this type of thing is happening all over our country and it's being covered up. Um, and there's not enough being done. There's not enough being done um, to support people in these cities, in Minneapolis and Tacoma, um, to put pressure on um, our lawmakers to, to stick with the laws. Because, you know, even after, um, you know, we, so Tacoma Action Collective worked with Manuel Ellis's sister, Monet Carter, and we, you know, we put pressure on the state to do a state investigation um, instead of letting the police investigate themselves because there were several police entities involved throughout um, our county. Um, and, you know, laws changed the next year um, saying that there had to be a state investigation. But then just this year, things rolled back where now police are allowed to shoot people as they're running away again. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of times something happens and there's a lot of attention on it and then people forget and then laws roll back. Yeah, I, what, a, what a story. I mean, it's just so painful to hear that again and again. Uh, Tristan Taylor um, with Detroit Will Breathe. By the way, it's an integrated youth-led militant organization fighting against police brutality and systemic racism um, in uh, Detroit. So uh, Tristan, a similar question to you in terms of your uh, reaction to the killing of George Floyd, but also uh, tell us a bit about the uh, Shelby Five case um, that you all are involved in doing support work for, Tristan. Uh, sure, thank you. Um, I'll just start off by saying, you know, like many, um, I was enraged by uh, the killing of George Floyd. And I think it happened at a particular moment of uh, vulnerability um, as we were in the midst of a pandemic. And it was just that one straw that like, it was just a, a bit too much. Um, and I, I think the um, result of that uh, has been um, an exposure of the uh, injustice system and the way it works um, in ways that would not have uh, been the case uh, beforehand. Um, uh, but I think that uh, the issue that we have about how to maintain the power that was brought out um, in the movement to get justice for George Floyd um, is a struggle for creating organizations that the movement itself controls um, and that is politically independent of the Democrats and Republicans who are able to, in particular Democrats, uh, sap up a lot of energy of the movement um, and put it into toothless reforms. Um, and in Michigan, we also had a situation of a now, uh, including Patrick Leola, 
two black men, one in Detroit and one in Grand Rapids, who were shot um, in the head um, while uh, under custody uh, of police. Um, and uh, in both instances, uh, we don't have like justice for those black men. Um, and not only uh, is that the case in Michigan, but in reference to the Shelby Five, those are five activists, including myself, facing felonies for simply marching in the street of a Detroit suburb whose chief of police uh, was quoted in a Twitter account as uh, calling uh, protesters uh, savages and subhumans and how they deserve to be in body bags. And he still is the chief of police today. Mm. Uh, you know, unbelievable, but then again, not uh, unbelievable. Just uh, Tristan, terrible situation and sorry about the charges that you yourself are facing. Uh, Marcia, uh, back to you, because it does seem as though the, uh, you know, the mayor um, had said, the mayor of uh, Minneapolis, he had said that, well, you know, he put some measures in, in place, like no knock warrants, you know, no choke calls, et cetera. But he doesn't seem to have any teeth uh, because the police, given uh, the recent uh, report that found that the Minneapolis police continue to engage in discriminatory race-based policing, that they've entirely ignored uh, the mayor. Um, just um, your thoughts, Marcia. I would even say that they ignored the mayor, these toothless uh, announcements of, I have stopped this. We know it is an out and out lie. And these are lies. And, and I'm gonna be honest, whether it's here or in Michigan or Seattle or Detroit, anywhere, white supremacy gonna do what white supremacy wants to do. And they gonna look at all of us as black people and say, what you gonna do about it? That's what's happening. They're lying to our face, if not just wholesale executing us in the street. And we'll literally look at you and say, and that's what's going on. Why is Patrick's not a household name right now? Why do I have to search my memory to figure out who the last person that the police executed in this nation? George Floyd should have been it. It shouldn't have been an Amir Locke. But the mayor showed up for the first time in George Floyd Square yesterday for the unveiling of a street name. So it is now officially George Perry Floyd's Junior Square. And yet, you and I both know there are MLK boulevards where Black folks get killed by police all across this nation. Y'all, we ain't gonna do better until we get better. And we ain't getting better until we get back out in them streets and let folks be scared of our power. Right. Well, on that note, there's a lot more uh, to discuss here. What we're going to do, we're actually going to take our station break now. And when we return, we will continue with Marsha Howard, Jaleesa Trapp, uh, Tristan uh, Taylor, three activists out on the streets. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You could be anywhere on the globe tonight. We salute your soul because you chose life. The villagers are listening with innocence and mystery. You are now witnessing in a city history. We all together, together, together. We all move together, together, together. We all move together.
And that song is Inner City and Idris Elba. We all move together. Hopefully we'll hear a bit more of that song later in the hour. You are listening to Sojourner Truth. We are nationwide and internationally as well on SoundCloud and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Also check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org where you can see our community calendar, get lots of other information as well. Now for our SoundCloud listeners, today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Minneapolis. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the Aboriginal territories of Australia, where protests, by the way, following the murder of George Floyd also happened. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. In a new update from the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health, it's reported that nearly 9 million people die from the effects of pollution each year, including a disproportionate amount of people in the global south. These deaths, which are linked to pollution from industrialization, the burning of fossil fuels and chemical exposures, have reportedly increased by more than 66% over the past two decades. The same hazardous sources of pollution, including air pollution from wildfires and methane, are also major contributors to climate change, which disproportionately affects people in underserved communities who have contributed the least to the climate crisis. The reality is that marginalized communities are already bearing the brunt of industrialization, and effective climate action cannot occur until we incorporate community-led solutions from the people and communities on the front line of climate change. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. So what we're going to do now, and we'll return with our uh, roundtable guests, Marsha Howard, Jaleesa Trapp, and Tristan Taylor. And opening this next round of uh, discussion, let us go to a clip now uh, part of the event that happened with Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden um, with this executive um, act that Joe Biden took. Karen Bass introduced legislation to advance much needed reforms. That legislation would have ensured greater transparency and increased accountability. We later named it the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and it was passed because of the strength of the leadership in the House of Representatives through the House of Representatives. However, last fall, Senate Republicans rejected the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. They walked away from their moral obligation to address what caused millions of Americans to march in the streets. The critical need that a coalition of Americans were demanding, were pleading for, in terms of reform and accountability. All righty, so I would like to reintroduce our guests again. We have Marsha Howard, who is based in Minneapolis. And as she said, she has been for two years and a day at George Floyd Square. Also with us is Jaleesa Trapp, who's with the Tacoma Washington Active Collective, and Tristan Taylor, who is a co-founder of Detroit Will Breathe. And 
really, before we get to a reaction from what Kamala Harris, the vice president, has said, uh, she's talking about the mass movement, that uh, a multiracial movement that broke out um, not only in Minneapolis, but across the country, cities, as well as rural areas in the United States and globally, and the UK, Australia, many parts of Europe, Africa, etc. But just looking at the context of today, on the one hand, we have these police killings that have continued. There have been many since the killing of George Floyd. And then there are other uh, white supremacist attacks, like the one that happened in Buffalo. Ten Black people uh, killed, three people injured, two of the injured um, being Black people. And of course, the nation is still reeling from the shooting of these children um, in a relatively uh, small town in Texas. And many people are talking about the proliferation of guns. That could be a whole other discussion. But just uh, to get your reaction to this, to put this in some context, you know, Afro-American historian, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, on the show when we're talking about Buffalo, he says that, you know, just as a Black person, as a Black man in particular, one feels like you're playing Russian roulette just to walk out your door, right? Um, so, Tristan, we're actually going to start with you on this, your reaction. I mean, Buffalo, that's just one of, a, again, a long line, unfortunately, of these kinds of, of white supremacist attacks. And so we're not only facing the systemic racism in law enforcement, but also this militia white supremacist movement that seems to be on the rise. It's not only on the rise, but in important ways, it's also received state sanction. And that is clearly expressed in Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal, where a white man was able to cross state lines with a gun and shoot protesters who were protesting yet another Black man being shot by police. And the fact that his trial went so smoothly and swiftly on his behalf, where those who were shot or killed by police, many of them still haven't seen a day of court, is proof positive to this you know, growth in white extremism being the byproduct of a state that is the courts, that is the Congress, and that includes both parties, the Democrats and Republicans, facilitating that rise by the way in which they deal disproportionately with Black people and people fighting for Black liberation versus angry white men with guns. A reporter commented to me after January 6th saying that, you know, Black people get shot in places we're supposed to be. And yet for the rioters, they were able to basically take a tour inside the halls of Congress. And that is a dynamic that has to be addressed. And we have to understand it as a dynamic that has to be addressed by the movement itself, collectively using the power of the working class and the press. Yeah, and I, you know, get shot in places we're supposed to be, you know, supermarket, walking down the street in your house, uh, like uh, Brianna uh, Taylor, you get pulled over for a traffic stop. Uh, you really don't know um, how that's going to uh, end up. Uh, Jalisa, 
uh, back to you, you know, my, my daughter, she, for a while, she lived in um, Washington State, in, um, in, in, in Tacoma, actually, and was really alarmed by just the level of uh, racism there. And the nation generally has this view of Washington State, of Tacoma in particular, as being this kind of font of uh, liberalism, right? And the you know, so I suppose, you know, it's it's sad, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be surprised that the murder of Manuel Ellis hasn't gotten the level of national attention that clearly it should have gotten. Uh, but just tell us again about the challenges uh, you are facing in Tacoma as you're doing this this organizing work. But um, is your is that also generally your view that the the racism in a place like Tacoma is one that uh, the rest of the nation really knows very little about, uh, Jalisa? That's a that's a great way to put it. I think. People don't think of Tacoma, Washington, Seattle, Washington, Washington State in general as a place where racism is so rampant because people are so nice. You know, that's where the tech companies are. But, you know, you have a place like Tacoma, Washington, where Manuel Ellis was killed by the police. When the video came out that evening, we have a Black mayor. She got on and did an address to the city, a live address. And, you know, she cried and she said that she believes that the officers should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. The next day, the police union put out a statement attacking her and saying she shouldn't have her job. She hasn't said anything since. You know, there's a Black woman who worked for the county who was there when the medical examiner actually originally said that um, Manuel Ellis's cause of death, death was hypoxia due to physical restraint. She since has been fired. The original report that they put out said that he died from excited delirium, which isn't even a thing. Once the officers were three of the six officers involved, directly involved, there's a lot more officers and firefighters who were involved in the death and the cover-up. When they were charged last year in May, mind you, it's been a year. There still has been nothing done. It's still just charges. And there hasn't been a trial. They were bailed out very quickly, like within an hour, by one person um, named Josh Harris, who owns a construction company. He is now running for county council. You know, he's been empowered by people in the community who believe like him, nothing wrong was done. Even though you see on video, you hear from three eyewitnesses, one of them who actually was a former student of mine. You know, you, you see Manuel Ellis being beat in the street, and then you hear over the police scanner him saying, I can't breathe, sir. I can't breathe. Five different times saying that he can't breathe. And they actually put a spit hood over his head. So when somebody like Josh Harris bails them out within an hour of them being charged, and then he's able to run for county council and there's no outrage over that, you know, that kind of tells you what kind of city Tacoma is where, you know, people put on this front that there's no racism and that everything's fine, but it's absolutely not. And it's terrifying for Black people, even if you are the Black mayor of the city, you know, you can't say anything. You can't, you can't make a statement about, you know, Black lives mattering 
to you because the police union is going to bully you out of saying that. Right. Yeah. Just just really, you know, sharing a lot of information. I'm sure a lot of folks uh, don't know. Uh, Marcia, uh, back to you. You talked about just the history of what has been happening with uh, Black people, you know, in Minneapolis. And uh, we know, you know, for example, um, way back in, in 2015, Jamar Clark, 24 years old, was uh, shot and died uh, in uh, Minneapolis. 23-year-old, um, a 23-year-old Somali man killed in exchange of gunfire. That was in 2020, Odal al-Id. Uh, Dante Wright, of course, is, is a name that, that at least that one got um, some publicity in April of, of 2021. He was 20 years old. Uh, Winston Boogie Smith, 32-year-old in the uptown area of uh, Minneapolis in 2021. And, and Marcia, if you just look at the history of police in the United States um, and the fact that they really began with uh, slave patrols, first slave patrols rising up in South Carolina in the early uh, 17. Uh, hundreds and members of slave patrols could forcefully enter anyone's home, right? Uh, based on suspicions, you know, that they were harboring people, meaning you just uh, think of these no not warrants and, you know, just forcefully entering somebody's home, whether it's the right person or not. Um, just, you know, your thoughts on this and, and also the context of Buffalo. I'm so glad that you brought that up because the slave patrols of old are the same patty rollers are in squad cars now. And you need to understand that people that were on slave patrols were those lower class Scots Irish folks trying to earn whiteness and giving them the hand of so-called justice at that time was imbuing them with a certain sort of power that they couldn't get because they weren't landowners. But you were able to give every raggedy poor white man some power. And the same holds true now. I'm a public school teacher. I feel like, you know, teachers are the mama, police are the daddies, the nurses are the aunties, firemen are the uncles. And these dudes are going through the city, and not even just men, it's women as well on the force, that feel as if, they have the right to violate people of color in the name of the law. This long arm of the law is an extension of the power that all white folks are maybe even subconsciously endowed with. And that is why they continue from coast to coast across this nation to not put any backbone behind any idea of reform, let alone substantive change. They don't want to give it up. They don't want to give it up. Why would you give up the power to subjugate another person? I mean, it's theirs. They got it. Who would willingly cede that power? They not. They're not. And so in Minneapolis right now, where we have a long history, documented history of the subjugation of Black and Brown folk and Indigenous folk, and I want to be clear, in Minnesota, Indigenous folk for them, it's like 1929 Mississippi for them. There are counties like Beltrami where they, they die at higher rates than Black folks do in Minneapolis. They do by the hands of the police. But what we need to understand as a nation that that pendulum swing where working class or even middle class, irate white men are trying to take back their power by spilling our blood, by consecrating the ground with Black and brown folks' blood, 
that is something that we are watching in real time as it happens. And the question that we are going to have to ask ourselves is how do we forge a community in which people don't feel psychologically invested in our oppression? Because you, right. it, ain't, it ain't happening at the ballot box. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also, it, it ain't happening either. You know, we saw all of the protests that broke out, you know, across the country and across the world. And look at where we are now. I mean, just um, um, the anniversary, the actual anniversary day, May 26th of the killing of George Floyd, President Joe Biden signed an executive order, um, given that the George Floyd Act uh, couldn't get through the Senate, right? It passed the House, but it couldn't get through the Senate. And many people felt that that act, the George Floyd Act, didn't go far enough, but even that was too much uh, for the Republican Party. Now, the order that Biden uh, signed into order, uh, he, it authorizes the formation of a national accreditation system for police departments. We'll create a national database of federal officers who have disciplinary records or face substantiated misconduct complaints. Um, federal law and age, law enforcement agencies will also update their use of force policies to emphasize de-escalation. And the executive order also authorizes the Justice Department to use federal grant funding to encourage local police to further restrict the use of chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Um, now, the Justice Department uh, just last week had also updated its use of force policy. And that was the first time it was updated in 18 years. Now, this is according to a report from the Washington uh, post. Um, but uh, Tristan, just uh, starting with you, I mean, it, you know, again, this executive order basically has, Biden doesn't have the power to um, enforce any of this, right? It has to be done through legislation and legislation didn't happen. Um, so just your response, we, we've got like about eight minutes or so left for our discussion here. And uh, you know, what Biden announced is also weaker than the George Floyd Act. And many activists have thought that the George Floyd Act also did not go far enough. Your response to these uh, efforts, legislative efforts, and, and, and also on, on the White House, and what do you think it'll take to really bring about the change that we're all seeking? Tristan. Yeah, first, I think the executive order is a joke. Uh, the same way that the George Floyd Act was. And it wasn't even the thing that people were demanding. People were demanding to defund and abolish police departments, to use the funds that we spend on suppressing black and brown communities, uh, to providing them with like resources that actually could give them a quality of life. Um, we have seen Joe Biden refuse refused to defund the police department. In fact, he made sure to give them more money, even though these police departments still failed to act with accountability. Um, so to me, what is going to take to get the type of real change we need is to get back in the streets like we were before and to not allow Democrats and their electoral campaigns to take us off the streets. And we have to actually deepen 
the mobilizations that we're having and making sure that we come out of it again with organizations of our own that are expressing the needs and interests of working class and oppressed people and not that of the Democratic Party politicians or middle class elements who are simply seeking to get a, a better seat at master's table. I'm just sick of it. I'm just sick of this fake outrage. Say that. Um, Say that. Harris is just like outrage. Oh, how, how dare the Republicans? How dare the Democrats continue to fund, in fact, increase funding for the police departments that still do us harm? How dare they? And just one note, there are four Black people in Grand Rapids who are facing felony charges related to protesting to get justice for Patrick Leola. The police officer who shot Patrick still doesn't have charges against him. Yeah. We have a Democratic governor, by the way. And, and what does that tell you? So, so Tristan, before we, we want to get some final thoughts in from everyone here, but tell us then, in terms of your organization, um, Detroit Will Breathe, you talk about the fight for Black liberation as an intersectional fight. Just tell us, uh, you know, um, briefly what your organ organizing and organization looks like. What, what do you mean by the and it being an intersectional fight, Tristan? Well, first, uh, well, I'll say three things really quickly. Um, we have to understand that oppression that Black people face uh, is part of a bigger system of capitalist exploitation, and that that exploitation takes expression in different forms with other oppressed people. And our ability to actually make the type of change that we need to uproot this completely racist um, system that does nothing but exploit people um, is uh, to build unity with other oppressed people. Uh, to, and to expose why capitalism at its core is the problem that has to be replaced and there's no fixing that. Uh, the second thing that we uh, try to do is create an organization that functions on the will of the movement itself. So in the beginning of the protest, we use the massive rallies as an opportunity to do like mass assemblies where we decided and voted as a movement what our demands were, what the next steps we wanted to take. Um, and the third thing is we look to deepen um, our knowledge and understanding of how the system works um, and ways in which we can come up with uh, a counterforce uh, to the oppression that we face. And so that's why we put a great emphasis on the need to create independent rank and file organizations or grassroots organizations right. that the movement themselves like control uh, and, and form what they do. Right. And thank you. Thank you for that, Tristan. And uh, Jalisa, what about you with the Tacoma at Action Collective? Um, it is a collective and you are saying that you're based in the principles of building autonomous uh, communities. But Jalisa, just, you know, we are close to the top of the hour. So just some final thoughts from you and anything you would like to share about the kind of organizing some of the tactics or strategies that you all are using, Jalisa Trapp. Just real quickly, I wanted to put into in perspective on something that Tristan said about um, police, police um, being funded. Um, so in Tacoma, in December last year, um, 
Tacoma City Council voted to give Tacoma Police Department a seven percent um, a six percent retroactive raise for the year of 2021, um, and then another seven percent increase for this year. And that includes the officers who killed Manuel Ellis because all of them are still employed. Um, meanwhile, they cut the library's um, funding by four percent, um, and so. The, the type of organizing that we do is really making sure that we call attention to all of these things that are happening because people don't know um, and people don't know how to work together. And so we really focus on um, working with other organizers in our city and in our county because we can't do everything ourselves. Um, you know, there's people that are focused on housing, people who are focused on working with our houseless neighbors. There's people who are focused on mutual aid. And so we really make sure that we connect with everyone and share our platforms because there's so much happening at once that we cannot address everything ourselves. Um, and so, you know, our organizing is really focused on making sure that we are tapped in with the community and that we are uplifting and we're giving everyone a platform who needs it so that everybody can work together because we're being attacked from all different angles at once. Right. And um, thank you. And uh, Marsha um, Howard, I mean, we also have to lift up um, the Amir Locke, who was killed in February with a, a no-knock warrant inside a downtown uh, Minneapolis um, apartment. But just some final words uh, from you, uh, Marsha, as we are, are marking the second, the week of the second anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And you continue daily to be out on the square, Marsha Howard. Um, yeah, I'm still out there. And before I go, thank you so much for your work, Shalisa. Thank you so much for your words, Tristan, because you ain't never lied. You ain't never lied. The reason why George Floyd Square, the longest running political occupied uh, place, has lasted as long as it had for two years straight, every day, 24 hours a day, is because we took something. We have leverage. Y'all, a protest ain't a protest unless you mess up somebody's day. And that's why they coming at us hard with these felony charges. My comrades have had to face it as well. You need, you need to, you need to understand that as a people, ain't nothing gonna be given to us. If you really think that the white folks in this country are just going to sit back and give away the power that they've had for 400 years, you are sadly mistaken. The only time we even felt some power in the last two years is when we took to the streets, when white and black and Asian and native and all of us took to the street and said, no more. Now you can wake up and still lay in the bed. And right now folks are resting. The reckoning will come. It will come. And it's going to be the fire next time. They better quit playing. No justice, no streets. Mm, 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 mm. Well, on that note, um, I want to thank uh, each and every one of you uh, for your work. Uh, Marsha Howard, uh, Jaleesa uh, Trapp, Tristan Taylor. Um, for your insight and for your continued work. It's always so uplifting, uh, particularly on, but not only, but I, I do want to uplift uh, the youth, the youth leaders that, that are out there now uh, doing this work and carrying on the work that our ancestors uh, began so very long ago. And I'm sure that they are walking with each and every one of you now, but we are out of time. So thank you for joining us. We are going to have to leave it there. And I'd like to uh, thank 
our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Our board operator today is Gary Baca. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow for our weekly roundtable. A lot going on. You won't want to miss that. Thank you for listening and you all please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.